there's a group of maybe about seven or so congressmen. These congressmen are basically like, hey, Kevin, we will vote for you if you strap on the suicide vest and give us the detonator. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Huck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Friday, December 23rd. Today, Peter Hamby talks to Tina Wynn about the MAGA civil war inside the House, where Kevin McCarthy is struggling to win over a half dozen far-right holdouts who are blocking his path to become Speaker. And later, I talk to Eric Gardner about the explosion of litigation stemming from Elon Musk's rampage at Twitter and what he's doing now that he's fired so many of his own lawyers. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Friday, everybody. I'm joined today by Tina Wynn. This is your Christmas present. Christmas is uh, around the corner and Tina Wynn is here. How you doing, Tina? I'm very honored to be everyone's like final Christmas present before <laughs> the holidays begin in earnest. Um, happy Hanukkah Great. to everyone else who celebrates it. Uh, I can be your Hanukkah present too. <laughs> Speaking of gifts, by the way, if you need a last, last, last minute gift, check out Puck's uh, Guide to Mirth and Merriment on Puck.News where we have lots of gift ideas from all of your very sophisticated Puck writers, reporters, editors, etc. Tina, you have a really interesting piece about Kevin McCarthy's struggle to become House Speaker that's up on Puck right now. And you're coming at this from a different angle than a lot of the reporting I've seen, which is mostly just like whip counting. There's this interesting division going on in the MAGA sphere that I want you to explain. Why are some people like Matt Gates, Andy Biggs, Ralph Norman, these are all MAGA people, why are they against Kevin? And then you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jim Jordan, who are just as MAGA, and they are for Kevin McCarthy becoming speaker. What is the difference between those two and some others and then the hardcore Never Kevin Alliance? Is it just that he promised them nice committee assignments? There is a bit of that going on. Uh, the way that someone I spoke to who knows people on both sides and like is pretty MAGA himself, the way he put it was they both are equally MAGA, but the way that Marjorie wants to push the MAGA agenda is by building relationships with leadership. And the way that Matt wants to pursue the MAGA agenda is by destroying leadership. And that kind of goes to this fundamental tension of what the MAGA movement is, right? Like it's anti-establishment by nature and it's very, very pugilistic. It was a standard set by Trump who was like, I will fight the establishment. I'm going to mock them. I'm going to rip them apart in public. And that's sort of been the standard fighting style of MAGA going forward. Last week, I did a piece about Marjorie Taylor Greene being like, she's built a lot of good relationships in Congress. She's not a very toxic personality within the caucus. And she's built a lot of allies. And as a result, she's going to be able to work within the system of committeeships and writing legislation and getting power that way. On the other hand, you have Matt Gates and his crew who are like, we don't like Kevin. He has not proven himself loyal to our cause even though he said that he now supports a MAGA agenda, doesn't mean that he can't pull a being a politician move and pivot back to supporting big tech or like willing to negotiate on Ukraine, for instance. Those are two big barriers for the Never Kevins to overcome. And I don't think they can, and I don't think they want to. Right before we started taping this, Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene both came out with separate op-eds dueling against each other in the Daily Caller with... Gates saying, like, Kevin is a traitor. Kevin is the worst. We can never trust Kevin. And then Green saying, 
no, Kevin is a great ally for us. Some of my colleagues, such as Matt Gates, I love working with him, but he's wrong on this count. You can kind of feel the vitriol seeping in on both Gates and Green's part as they like kind of fight this weird little proxy war against each other. Keep an eye on that. That could be interesting. That's really interesting because, you know, especially during 2020 and 2021, you would see Gates and Green would go out together and like go speak at events and they would be surrogates for people and they would create content together. Like, I'm just curious if they actually don't like each other anymore because they were definitely like a, a pair out there for a while. I think temperamentally they're, they have two different ways of approaching politics, right? Marjorie Taylor Greene is just really, really friendly. People who I've talked to are like, she will literally come up and give you giant hugs even the way that leadership views her is even though she's kind of the kooky space laser lady, she's never really been overly mean to them. Whereas Gates will go on Twitter and just like ream Kevin McCarthy for years over things like where they stand on Liz Cheney or what Matt Gates may or may not have done over Venmo with underage women. He's always on the attack. He will never not be on the attack. And That, I think, is a fundamental difference between the two of them that could eventually erupt in a big fight. The point you made about Marjorie Taylor Greene being nice, it's a weirdly underrated fact about Congress. Like, it is like high school. You do want to hang out with people that you like hanging out with. And then there are other people that you're like, dude, Jim Jordan's here? Like, do not, I do not want Jim Jordan sitting at my table. Like, I do not want to pick Jim Jordan on my dodgeball team in gym class. Like that's that that whole vibe is real. Yeah, the way that um one person I spoke to last week put it was like Congress is toxic. Everyone's fighting each other. People don't even interact with each other because of proxy voting. So when someone comes in and is nice to you, that you can't really underestimate that and you kind of crave it. That's so interesting. And the proxy voting element of that too can't be understated. Okay, so in terms of the people opposing Kevin McCarthy. You have the Never Kevins, the hashtag Never Kevins, who are the, the the Matt Gates, Andy Biggs crowd. And then you also have another team called the Team Motion to Vacate. What is that? Okay. I know it's like the clunkiest name possible, but you know what we're talking about congressional like parliamentary procedures. Of course, it's always going to be clunky. Like what the hell is cloture? But in any case, there's a group of maybe about seven or so congressmen who are considered far right. They put out this um, list of demands that said, we will support Kevin, but it's contingent on a whole bunch of things. And the key one is um, restoring the ability for members to force motions to vacate the chair, meaning that if they feel angry one day at Kevin McCarthy, they can say, I call a motion to vacate the chair, force a vote, and then oust the speaker. Uh, It was a really little used rule until 2015 when Mark Meadows, who was in Congress at the time, used it to threaten John Boehner with a uh, solid vote saying, all right, I'm going to whip enough votes, show that we have no confidence in you. And Boehner was like, all right, I'm going to leave. This could be embarrassing. When Pelosi came in in 2018, she slipped this provision into, I believe, some massive omnibus package, making it a lot harder for an individual member to do that. So these congressmen are basically like, hey, Kevin, we will vote for you if you strap on the suicide vest and give us the detonator. Lauren Boebert actually just became the latest person to join this team. And uh, she said in this interview 
next to Matt Gates that she wanted this mechanism in there to serve as a check on Kevin McCarthy's power because she doesn't necessarily trust him to stick to a pure MAGA agenda all the time. And uh, from what I've heard, there's maybe like 10 or 15 people overall who are on Lauren's side when it comes to this. And they're just being silent on whether they're going to vote or not. And the five never Kevins are there to draw the fire and like basically give them air cover to find an alternative to Kevin that they trust more. It's a really effective strategy. First, in that this like obstinate block is enough to deny Kevin the speakership. And at least there are two people who we really won't be able to sway off that. You could definitely say that like Rosendale can't be swayed because he's about to run for Senate and Matt Gates will never be swayed because, you know, that's who Matt Gates is. And I don't think he likes Kevin very much. It doesn't feel likely, though, that McCarthy will hand over the detonator to a bunch of people who are inclined to remove him from speaker in a few weeks. Right. That doesn't seem something like he'd be willing to do. I don't think he's willing to do that at all. And I think there's a way that he can give enough concessions to this block in order to get them to drop the motion to vacate. I think a lot of that is dependent on how well he can counter this current omnibus bill. And uh, as one person put it to me, there's a massive snowstorm about to hit D.C. Will that buy him enough time to start whipping votes in his direction? All right, last question really quick. There was a thing in Politico the other day that basically Steve Scalise from Louisiana also in House Republican leadership, would be a sort of fallback option if Mike Kevin doesn't get to 218. Is he the natural heir if things fall through for Kevin? He might not have a choice if things get to that point. I could see a situation where there's a Paul Ryan move in which this guy who would rather not have this target painted on his back is prevailed upon by... I guess, like more moderate allies who would want someone sane in that position, as well as like Freedom Caucus people who would be like, fine, you're acceptable. I don't think he's the first alternative choice to the Freedom Caucus. Um, There have been a bunch of bizarre names thrown in my direction. Such as? (laughs) Mike Johnson. That's like sleepy Mike Johnson. Um, That was a really funny one. I don't know if that's possible, but have you ever watched uh, The Young Pope? Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I like Young Pope. So- Basically, the situation was the reason they had a young pope was because there were these like several power centers and no one could vote on them. And they're like, all right, we're going to pick this moderate candidate who is a pope, who is who is a cardinal who's super young and played by Jude Law. They're like, he's not the best, but you know what? He's really young and we can influence him in a lot of different ways. Naturally, he goes, no, I'm the most conservative pope in the modern era. We're going to like shut everything down. But that's sort of the situation that you might be approaching here. It's a fairly unlikely situation, uh, depending on how many favors Kevin has left to give out, but it's not an impossible future. Interesting. I would bet on Kevin, but that's just me. I don't know. You know more than I do, which is why we have you on this podcast, Tina. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I'd also bet on Kevin too, but it's going to be really dramatic on the way there. Yes, it is. His poor family. Try to get him off the phone for one minute. Um, All right. Thank you, Tina. Thanks. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here on the mic with Eric Gardner. Happy holidays, Eric. Uh, Happy holidays to you. So now that we're here at the end of 
2022, I thought, uh, what better way to wind down the year than with an advent calendar of all the <laughs> outstanding litigation facing Elon Musk, uh, which you've been reporting on. And some of these cases that you've flagged have surprised me. So um, maybe we could start with one of the biggest since Elon took over Twitter, which is all the lawsuits he's facing over how he went about firing about half of the company's 7,500 employees. First of all, what did he actually do wrong in firing those people? A few things, potentially. Number one, you know, under federal and California state law, you're supposed to give three months notice when you're doing these mass firings. So initially they thought that they could get, you know, past this by just giving everyone three months worth of severance. But apparently there was a little change of mind on that. And so we're seeing, you know, a bunch of litigation around around these mass firings. Also people who who said that they were promised certain things, like they were promised that they could work remotely or promised uh, that, you know, they'd have certain benefits for this amount of time. There's a lot of lawsuits like that and a couple of, of would-be class actions and some stuff that's that's in arbitration with, with executives and employees. Uh, just, you know, a lot of stuff going on on the employment realm. How many total lawsuits are we talking about here? Do you have any sense of the scale? Well, I can't tell you for, for sure because some of them are in arbitration and secret, but there's at least a half dozen related to the firing of employees. But those half dozen include potential class that are thousands. So, you know, counting the number of lawsuits isn't as important as in counting the number of people who are potentially in litigation with Twitter. And there we're talking about thousands. I assume Twitter is um, fighting having those rolled together into a class action. Yeah, they they uh, want to push this into arbitration and not just arbitration, but they're also pointing to a class action waiver in the in the employment agreement. So so what they want is for each single person who used to be employed at Twitter to proceed individually with the company in arbitration. So that could add up to thousands of arbitrations or if an arbitrator founds that to be unconscionable, then you know maybe it's stuffed altogether into one. That is a little unsure uh, right now how it's going to proceed. Some of these employees still have hopes of, of dealing with this in open court too. That's yet to be determined. You've also written that uh, there are already lawsuits from some jilted equity partners, from vendors that Twitter hasn't paid, which is sort of astounding. Do you have a sense of how serious that litigation could be for Elon? I think that's going to be more of an economic nuisance than, than re- really too serious. I think he can shoulder the burden of those kinds of lawsuits. Those are, you know, normal types of lawsuits that, you know, a lot of businesses get. Yeah, of course, uh, he's going to get a high volume of those just based on, you know, coming in and, and upsetting relationships. From a tactical standpoint, I think he can deal with those. It's all the other stuff that's going on dealing with regulators and dealing with Tesla shareholders and, and dealing with bankers. Those are the things that are going to cause true headaches. The other stuff with partners and vendors, you know, that's just uh, just trying to settle the stuff. I, I, I don't think any of that will go to trial. I think it's just about, you know, just kind of posturing at this point. Well, you mentioned regulators. I know that one of the bigger legal headaches potentially facing Elon is this consent decree that Twitter has with the FTC. This dates back to 2009 or so when there was a data hacking incident. What is the potential issue there for Musk? Is that something that's already underway or is that just a potential obstacle as he moves forward? It's definitely an obstacle under the consent decree. They're not supposed to 
you know, misrepresents their policies. They're, you know, supposed to honor the privacy choices of their users. And there's a bunch of other things that, that are involved. This is something that was also tightened a couple of years ago when Twitter got into a little trouble for using telephone numbers that were provided to them as part of authentication. Where this comes into play is the fact that Elon Musk is trying to really generate revenue for the new company. And, you know, one of the reasons ways that he's trying to do that is try to, you know, push the edge a little bit in terms of data collection and then provide that to, to advertisers. The problem is that the consent decrees really ties his hands in, in, in many respects. So Elon's people have kind of whispered that they don't really care about the FTC. I think that the FTC really does care about Elon and does care about Twitter. So, you know, there's a, a brewing showdown that that's happening. And everyone has their eyes these days on Twitter. So I imagine that that this is the sort of thing that, that could end up in court or end up in an administrative proceeding at the FTC. They're not the only regulators who are hunting for him right now. I'm sure that, that there are other problems. And he's under similar pressure from regulators in Europe, too. European uh, regulators can, might almost be the more serious issue, considering how aggressive they've been in the past when going after tech platforms. It's not just privacy, although privacy is a big issue uh, in Europe. The regulators there also care about maintaining good competition in terms of you know, how Elon might restrict links to other competitive websites. That's something that they'll be looking into. They certainly want to make sure that he's managing a platform in a proper and ethical way. In the United States, you know, we've had trouble, you know, regulating platforms, how, what they do when it comes to disinformation and that sort of thing. But in, in Europe, they, they've passed some some pretty aggressive laws that, you know, put the onus on, on these platforms to, to do something about hate crimes and, and threats and gender violence and all sorts of things. And so, you know, the Europeans are likely to get very aggressive and make lots of demands and the penalties are huge. They're, you know, up to 10%, maybe even 20% under the cer certain circumstances. They can even order platforms to cease doing operations. This is something that's going to be a very, very big thing in the, in the next year, I think. Of course, one of the ironic details in all of this is that Elon actually fired a number of the lawyers who work at Twitter when he came in, including James Baker, who was previously at the FBI. And Elon sort of viewed all these people as almost like deep state agents of the previous regime. Do you think that's going to sort of come back to bite him or is he better off with his own representation? I think it's a little bit of both. He deserves lawyers that, that he trusts. So if he feels uncomfortable with, with the previous regime, then, it, you know, he has every right to replace them. And I think that's, a, that's actually a pretty good thing, even though I think that these lawyers actually were very well respected in the legal community and they were doing a good job, I think. From Elon's perspective, if he's not comfortable with them, then then he should, you know, replace them. The problem is he hasn't replaced them yet. He hasn't gotten lawyers in who he trusts and who can function effectively and make sure he stays out of trouble. From that perspective, I think that losing all this legal talent has really hurt the company. And if he doesn't manage the situation quickly, it you know, it can become a huge, serious threat. These are the same, you know, people who can warn him about regulators out there and, and tell him about the consent decree and give him the right guardrails and figure out a way to execute his vision without, you know, getting into all this legal trouble. I think it would behoove him to at least hire a general counsel right now. 
it's a little bit mind blowing to me that that he hasn't that this position is unfilled at the moment. He has taken some people from his other companies to give him help right now, but I think that someone needs to come on full time uh, and just look after Twitter's legal affairs. I'm not sure I can promise you a uh, Elon less. 2023, but uh, may the coming holidays grant you a bit of a reprieve. Thanks as always. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at pucknews. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.